Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for joining me on Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. I am so grateful for you and grateful to you for tuning in and sharing this journey with me. I am overwhelmed with how many people come up to me and say that they're really enjoying this type of communication, teaching, and sharing. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey of yoga, this journey of spirituality, this journey of mindfulness, this journey of seeking wisdom. More than anything else, this is meant to support the seeker's journey, meant to support you on the path. If you find this series of teaching really beneficial, the way that you can support this series is to become a member of the Om Stars yoga community and practice. We have decided to make this series free and available to everyone so that no matter where you are in the world, you can get the teachings that will hopefully provide sustenance for the seeker's journey. And for those of you that can become a member and give your support, please know that I appreciate it. And I'll see you on the mat real soon. One of the things that distinguishes the Ashtanga yoga practice is what's called the vinyasa. And uh, this is important to talk about in our contemporary yoga world because there are so many yoga classes that are called vinyasa yoga. So when we say that the krama or the method of Ashtanga yoga is vinyasa, this can be confusing to people who maybe have dropped in on what is called a vinyasa yoga class. So if we think about that, we have to understand, well, what, what makes the Ashtanga yoga vinyasa particular and what are we actually doing, you know, in the practice? What is, what does vinyasa mean? First of all, the word um, vinyasa in our traditional sense uh, is said to be an activity performed in coordination with breath and movement that has the intention to create a sacred space. So whenever we have an activity that is done that coordinates breath and movement, and that activity is done with the intention to create sacred space, this is the origins of vinyasa. And we can think about this not coming from the asana practice, but coming from um, ancient Vedic rituals where breathing, chanting, and particular hand and body movements were used to create or consecrate a space of worship. And usually in the oldest and most traditional sense, this was done as an offering into the fire. And the fire represents the fire of purification. And this would be a traditional fire if you've ever joined a traditional Indian puja, where there's a fire and many things are offered into the fire. And this is a practice that predates the asana practice as we know it, but originates from that same Sanatana Dharma culture uh, from India that the asana practice comes from as well. So when we think about vinyasa, first we have to understand that, that, oh, actually, <laughs> this has nothing to do with when my leg is going behind my head. This is having to do with the creation of some sort of holy space, some sort of space of worship. Now, um, when we then understand how that concept of vinyasa became um, embodied in the flow of the practice as we know it, then we have to understand at some point in the, the, the spiritual lineage of yoga, the concept of fire has changed. Rather than there being an external fire upon which we sort of throw things and ask for purification, the, one of the main features of the yoga practice is to internalize the fire. 
So what does that mean? That means that we're trying to cultivate fire within ourselves. So we call this the Agni or the fire of purification. And we do this by generating what's called tapas or the practice of generating internal heat. And in order to do this, we need very specific, uh, a specific framework. We need to coordinate breath. We need to coordinate our body and we need to coordinate our mind. And so we have breath, body and mind, not moving in any random order, not moving in an order that we feel like for the day, but moving in a very particular set sequence that has the intention of creating a holy space or a sacred space. So our vinyasa method is meant to be coordination of breath with movement. And this is the krama or the methodology of the Ashtanga practice in regards to the vinyasa method. So when we experience a flow through the practice, this is because there are no extra breaths. This is because every breath is consequential and intentional. So that rather than just saying, well, I'm going to do a forward bend. No, there's a framework to do the forward bend with the again understanding that the deeper intention of the Ashtanga practice is not really to stretch the hamstrings. So try to understand that. This is something that's hard to understand because we spend so much time doing what? Trying to stretch our hamstrings, among other various muscles that are tight in our bodies. You know, not only the hamstrings, probably numerous muscles we need to go on that cue. Um, so because we spend so much time trying to stretch a muscle or strengthen a muscle or so much time and hyper-focus on the muscles of the body, we forget that actually Paschimottanasana is not about stretching the hamstrings, even though it's a byproduct. So we get obsessed with the byproduct. It's like we will go on a journey and we get stuck at this very, very interesting way station, you know, and it was very interesting. And there were a lot of cool things there, but we were never meant to be stuck at that way station for so long. We were meant to explore it and then move on. And this is something that if we understand what vinyasa really means in our Ashtanga yoga journey, this can really help us kind of come back to the, 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 the more traditional aspect of the path. So when we understand coordination of breath with movement, now we have the traditional counts. So this is also something that distinguishes an Ashtanga yoga class. When you come into a traditional Ashtanga class, you will hear the Sanskrit counting, ekam, dwe, trini, chatwari. These are the Sanskrit numbers of one, two, three, four. We, they have some vinyasas that go <laughs> quite extensive. They go much longer than that. But the idea is that we are counting each breath and accounting for each breath. And that those movements are not random, but they're meant to be a moving prayer. And that this is how we kind of work with breath, body, and mind to create that sense of holiness within ourselves. So the sacred space is within and without as well. There's an atmosphere, an energy when many students are engaged in that deep personal work of spiritual practice. But we are the ones who can experience that, that sacredness within ourselves. So this is where we count, ekam, dwe, trini, chatwari. Traditionally, it's also said that every posture begins and ends in samastitihi. So this is why when we get into the seated poses, uh, you will hear what's called sapta inhale, jump through. And so you might be wondering, well, why isn't it ekam? Isn't it the first breath of the practice? Well, this is because theoretically, we could have come all the way back up to samastitihi and started again. Some people call this the full vinyasa method. And there is a teacher named Lino Miele from Italy, who was my husband's first teacher. And he was known kind of in a very um, affectionate way as the full vinyasa man. 
because he would have practiced this full vinyasa method and he would teach a primary series class full vinyasa. So this means that you would come up to samasthiti, so after Prashimatanasana, instead of jumping back and jumping through, you would jump back, jump up, stand up, samasthiti, jump, go fold forward, jump back, jump through, and do that in between every asana. So now, whatever you, time you think you've spent in this long practice today, if we do the full vinyasa method, you add a minimum of at least 30 or 40 minutes. So this takes a long time, it's like three-hour class, you know, very tiring. You're jumping here, jumping there, jumping here, and jumping there, <laughs> and then jumping here and there, and there's already a lot of jumping. So at some moment, you know, Patavi Joyce, I think, he used to teach this full vinyasa method. And at some moment, I think maybe it just got to be too much. You know, when there started to be more and more students and the students started to have more and more postures, I think at some moment he said, we do half vinyasa. It's better for you, better for me. <laughs> we all go to breakfast faster, you know? So, and that starts to be important at some moment, especially if you're teaching, you know? <laughs> at some moment in the old, old shala in Lakshmipuram, um, when there were only 12 students at a time, suddenly 12 students at a time, 40 students can take a long time. You know, so that's, that's where how many people were there on my first trip to India, 40 students, but 12 students at a time still takes a long time with only 12, you know, at some moment there were almost a hundred and this man was teaching from 4 a.m. to 2 p.m. No break. When you think about that, then you think half vinyasa, let's, <laughs> let's remove some vinyasas, you know, because it's too much. And it'll start to be too much for the, for the student as well, because this builds so much strength in the shoulders that sometimes, uh, unless the student needs to build a lot of strength, then it can work against uh, the flexibility that we need to develop in the practice. So it starts to be very, very practical. That being said, when the asanas are being taught therapeutically, so there is a realm within the Ashtanga method where we can let go of the set series of poses and work therapeutically with asanas. So this is also a potentiality. And in this case, then we would be able to do some few asanas and practice the full vinyasa method. And in this way, if we're doing less of them working therapeutically, we would start and end in samasthitihi and be able to say, move into just some few standing poses and then some few seated poses that would be used therapeutically. And we would need the jumping back and forth to keep the heat in the fire so that we're able to move into those asanas, even therapeutically. So we have to understand, oh, this is why these counts seem to vary. It's not random, right? There, there is a methodology and a logic to it if you look into the method. The same thing with the vinyasa method, that there is an idea of coordination of breath with movement. And there are some particularities within the Ashtanga practice where we breathe in, we hold, and then we enter the posture. We exit halfway, we hold, and then we continue with the breath. And we do this for a, a, for a couple of different reasons. Um, you know, anatomically and physically, there are the, the, those, there are many various reasons for giving the body a chance to settle. But in terms of creating those bookends, it's to be able to find the, the clearest path of entry into uh, the sacred space of the pose. See, how we enter the pose will determine what our quality of awareness is while we're in. If we enter the pose haphazardly, no, I'm going to do a forward bend. <laughs> and then we lie there then what can we expect to discover in that mental state, you know? If we enter a pose without pausing, particularly one that we really want, if we just jump and grasp and immediately throw ourselves into it, if we don't pause and back away from our attachment for a moment, 
what can we expect to experience if we enter the pose with the grasping state, with the desiring state? Well, we can't expect to burn through our impurities if we're, you know, reinforcing our impurities with how we enter the posture, you know, impurities of the mind more than the body even. So we have to understand this vinyasa method. Along those lines, we understand that this can be taken um, out of asana and applied into our life. So Krishnamacharya, when asked what vinyasa was, he has a wonderful reply, and he said that vinyasa means that when he used to teach out of his out of his home. So he said that vinyasa means that when the student arrives at the gate, you go and you welcome the student, and you walk with the student into the class, and you stay with the student, teaching them with each breath until they're completed with their practice. And then when the student is finished, you give them tea. And then after they've drank their tea, then you walk them to the gate and send them on their way. This is vinyasa. Right? So we understand again, what does that say? Well, this, if we think about that, there's so much teaching in that. First of all, it's about the sacred bond between the teacher and the student to understand that that is a sacred space. Then we understand if we think about it a little bit more, the presence of how to create that space with intentionality on the part of the teacher, the reliance or the kind of dependence of the teacher and the student together to create that kind of orchestration. Um, the idea of humility interlaced in teaching, the idea that um, breath is life and that each moment is the potential to explore uh, that kind of sim similar sacredness that we find in our practice. There's so much teaching in that, that, you know, what Krishnamacharya said. And if you reflect on it, you may have some additional things that come up for you when you reflect on that. Well, what does that mean for you? What can you take away on your journey as, a, our journey as a student, what can you take away on your journey as a teacher from how Krishnamacharya described vinyasa? What can you take away in your practice from that? Oh, how am I practicing? How am I going to practice? How am I putting my mat down? How am I treating the space around? What, how do I remove my mat? What do I do when I'm exiting my practice? What do you do? So many people, they get off their mat. What is the first thing so many people do off the mat? What do you think? We drink something. Maybe a lot of people, the first thing to do is they stare at their phone, you know? And they get up and immediately, oh, what's happened? Did anything happen? Oh, okay. Uh, nothing's happened. All right. So, like, we get up and immediately we're being, and then there's all these messages have arrived and we're bombarded by messages. So immediately we start, oh, some news message coming from here, some WhatsApp message is arriving, some social media notifications, and immediately we're gone, right? Or the first thing we do immediately, you know, we get up and we've lost it. You know, or so many people also, it's funny, we are in such a stress to come to our yoga class. You know, ah, I'm going to yoga. Please go. You know, <laughs> like, definitely, <laughs> you know, if that's before, you should definitely make it to class. It'd be better for the planet, you know. But the idea that this also is vinyasa, oh, how am I going to class? What am I doing when I leave class? This is also this idea of the, you know, vinyasa. So we can kind of expand our notions of the parameters of the practice. And in this way, um, we kind of understand yoga as a way of life. And this is how uh, this teaching has always been meant to be, is a way of life. The fact that you are here and doing the practice means that something inside of you is calling you to the practice. How much you answer that call is up to you. See, there's no end to what you can experience in the yoga practice. Some people, they, they'll come and be inspired to do some asanas. Great, they'll do some asanas, that's it. 
Other people, they'll start doing some asanas and then they'll say, is there something more? Should I learn meditation? Should I learn breathing practices? Should I change my diet, right? Should I uh, do something, you know? What should I do? And then what should I do? Should I, you know, be a nicer person? Yes, absolutely. That would be <laughs> definitely at all moments we should be a nicer person to ourselves primarily, I think. Um, now, if we think about these questions, my teachers would, from India um, would rarely ever say, you change your diet, you do this, you do that. They would, and also they're not going out and chasing students either. They're like, you, come into the yoga practice. No, right? Somehow we become sort of like, um, like we become kind of like, you know, yoga missionaries very quickly. We walk around and be like, you stranger, you should do yoga. You know, the person's like, I'm just, I'm just trying to cash a check. Um, I'm just in line at the bank and I, you know, and then we begin to be these like yoga missionaries trying to proselytize like the good news of yoga to everyone and anyone. And honestly, if you do that, that person, even if you drag them to class for a little bit, unless they have some calling within themselves, it will be useless. So in this way, I remember Pratabi Joyce used to say, I need one student to be a teacher. And I felt, I felt this was very humble and very true, but something we lose track of in our kind of mad rush to colonize the world with yoga. You know, like everyone should do yoga. Should they? You know, everyone wants to should do yoga. You want to do it? Awesome. Let's adapt the practice so you can do it. You don't want to do it? Guess what? I am not going to force you, you know, because someone, they don't want to do it then how are they going to have the intentionality of the mind to understand these things which are so subtle? How breathing in this way, following the count, how can this create a sacred space? Someone who's not interested in that won't have the patience to practice enough times to understand how it works. They'll try once or twice and be like, eh, I'm too stiff. Yeah, you couldn't really lift up. It's not for me, you know? So we want to understand that, that that spark from within, it's up to you how, how deeply you're going to take it. You're going to do some asanas? Great. Do some asanas. Let your body feel better. But understand that the deeper goal of yoga is not the body, that the body is a framework, a very important framework. And we're preparing our bodies to be a very good home for our mind and our soul. So how deeply are you going to take that thread of yoga? Will you be, bring consciousness into your speech? Will you bring consciousness into your diet? Will you bring consciousness into our habits of consumerism? Will you bring consciousness into family relations? Will you bring consciousness into your job? How, how far can you take it? Will you study the philosophy and try to understand more about, you know, the, the, the culture of yoga, the origin of yoga, the history of yoga? Will you, you know, take it into some of the more subtle practices like pranayama or meditation and explore different aspects which are beyond just the physicality of the practice. So that's up to you, you know, wait for it, you know. Um, there was always something that I used to think when I uh, first started going to India, uh, which was, let me be very careful which questions I ask my teacher, because once I have the answer, I'm not ignorant any longer, you know. <laughs> let me be very careful, because 
Now he says, do this. Now, now if I'm not doing that, then I'm disobeying. But if I just never asked, you know, then I have no, I'm, I'm in an ignorant bubble. I have no idea. I just totally fine, you know? So you could ask very specific questions. If you, for example, the diet question in the yoga practice, you would never tell anybody what to eat. But if you ask, you have very specific answers. You could ask very specific questions, like, dear teacher, shall I eat lentils? <laughs> yes, lentils, good food, great. <laughs> Big question, what should I, like, what diet should I follow? Then you're going to get, like, a very strict answer, you know? So if you ask very specific questions, you know, <laughs> then you can get very specific answers. So if you're only interested in very specific, like, there's some things you want to leave in the realm of ignorance, then... <laughs> better don't ask, you know? What time should I be practicing every day? That's also one, maybe don't ask your traditional <laughs> Indian teachers, you know? So we have this idea in Ashtanga Yoga that we should practice early in the morning. Um, now, it's not just torture, right? But the idea with practicing early in the morning is that, first of all, if you don't do it first thing in the morning, it, they're diminishing odds that you'll do it the longer the day goes on. Right. So the longer it is between the moment you wake up and you get on your mat, the, then there's all these distractions that come in. There's laundry, there's family, there's pets, there's emails, there's sounds, there's random construction happening. And suddenly we think, oh, tomorrow, you know, then you get hungry and then that's definitely not happening. Right. <laughs> so first of all, it's practical. Second of all, there, there's a, a very important reason that the earlier we practice, the more quiet our mind is. So the less time from the moment you get up to get on your mat, the more clear your mind will be. So you'll go deeper into that spiritual journey. Traditionally, there's said to be something called the Brahma Murta. And the Brahma Murta is the hour or two hours before sunrise. And the Brahma Murta is said to be the time when we can most deeply connect with our sense of the spiritual. Right. Um, I've always wondered if the Brahma Murta would shift according to time zones. Um, but like India, they don't, it does really stays very, it's very equatorial. They don't really have a big uh, time difference. So the Brahma Murta in India is between 4 and 6 a.m. So that um, is the unfortunate time when if you ask, when should I practice? You will get this answer. But between 4 and 6 a.m., then you think, yeah. Well, you know, 4 a.m. in India is actually <laughs> maybe like 1.30 p.m. in the U.S. So I'm practicing in the Brahma Murta in India. <laughs> you can play around with it a little, right? So I think it's, high, it's very difficult if you're not on uh, like a yoga retreat or you're not in a training where you don't have any other obligations to practice from 4 to 6 a.m. It's very, very difficult. If your entire, um, like, people you cohabitate with, your family members are not also involved in the Brahma Murta, this is very difficult, you know, because pets also wake up if you get up. So you get up at 3 a.m., your dog's looking at you like, are you going to feed me now? Are you going for a walk? What are we doing? It's 3 a.m. Shall we get up? You know, and so if you're not trained and okay, we all, this is what we all do. Not to mention the other family members, you know, the humans that are around who can actually, you know, say things, then, then it becomes very difficult. I only practice in the Brahma Murta, to be honest with you, when I'm in India because I'm doing nothing else. And that's maybe the only time that my uh, partner 
uh, would be willing to wake up at that time. Um, so at that time, we're both on the Brahmamurta path, um, you know. So in that way, it's uh, there are some elements of the traditional practice that when we're immersed in it, we can do it. And then we take what we can back and integrate it into our lives. So we don't think like, gosh, I practiced at 9 a.m. today. I'm a bad Ashtangi. Don't think like that. Just understand, look, I got on my mat. I did everything that I could. This was maybe I also woke up very late. So this was my Brahma Morta. <laughs> and then um, we understand that, okay, I'm doing the practice. I'm integrating it in my life. I'm understanding how I'm creating this sense of the sacred. And every time there's a little bit of, a, a, you feel a pull inside of yourself to go deeper. My advice to you is to follow that every single time because it will only lead you into more goodness. It will only lead you further along the path. When that pull comes up within you, whether it's to do a philosophy class, whether it's to recommit yourself to asana, whether it's to do a six day a week practice, whether it's to, you know, um, fly to India and, 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 you know, practice at the Shala in Mysore, whatever it is, if you feel that pull and it's pulling you deeper into the practice of yoga, my advice to you is to follow that every single time. Because time is short. You don't know what will happen to you or to the planet or to the teachers in the next moment. Do you feel that pull? That teacher exists? Go there. Learn that as soon as you can. And put all your heart and all your soul into it because time is short. You don't know. You know, we take it for granted. Oh, next year. Oh, next year. Oh, next time. Really? You never know. So a lot of people think that they need to, they feel a pull. And then they doubt themselves. Oh, I'm not ready. Oh, I want to go, but I'm not ready. Oh, I feel it, but I, it's just not now. Maybe later. I need to prepare. Prepare? What are you preparing? You know? I always think about that. What are you going to prepare? You know, oh, I'm not ready to go to India. I'm going to prepare. What are you preparing? What, what, what exactly are you preparing? You know, like knit, like a, like a duvet and bring it over? Like, what, what, what are you waiting for? You know? What's being prepared? You're building like a vehicle or something? Like, I don't understand. Like, I, and I, maybe I think that because I went to India when I, I'd been practicing less than a year. I'd been practicing like eight months and I went to India and I practiced with my teacher. So I just feel like, well, what, I definitely wasn't ready. You know, I was a hot mess when I went over. I couldn't do any of the poses and I had no idea what I was getting into. And I had never really eaten proper Indian food in my entire life until I landed there. And I, I don't think I ever, uh, and no one really warned me about spicy food either, which I talked to a lot of people. Nobody said anything. It's going to be very spicy. <laughs> that would have been a great thing um, to say to me. Um, but I, so I feel like prepare. As soon as you have the calling, Go. You know, what's the worst thing that happens? You're the worst student in the room. That's the worst thing that happens. <laughs> Wonderful. You know, you're a true beginner. Wonderful. And I'm always so thankful of, I was a true beginner when I went. And I was definitely, I think, the worst student in the room. There were so many people doing so many more advanced poses. And I was there doing some you know, a uh, very disheveled version of primary series. And they treated me just the same as everyone else. And I'm so grateful for that. And I think it's so important that we honor the human being that shows up on the mat, not the poses that are showing up on the mat. That's something I've learned from my teachers. And um, there are many times when there would be many, you know, people doing all kinds of contortion looking asanas 
And then there would be one student who was totally new, uh, you know, not really understanding how to do the practice, not memorizing, you know, the series. And then my teachers would go and pretty much almost give them a mini private lesson. And everyone would be like, hmm, why aren't they helping me with backbending? They're helping that beginner student figure out how to forward bend. It's not fair. You see people get mad. You know? I thought, oh, good. I get an easy day. You know, <laughs> it's better for me. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so it's important to be acknowledge that within ourselves, that spark that's within you, that's the spark, the same spark that yogis, not necessarily asana practitioners, but yogis answered thousands of years ago. This is why we have the practice. Those individuals, those yogis who are using the vinyasa method to consecrate the space of spiritual practice, they answered the call, that spark, the fire within. So we think about how far are we going to take the practice? Take it as far as you can, you know, learn as much as you can in all the time that you have. Um, you know, uh, again, because we take for granted time, but we never know, you know, this is the time we have. This is the time we're here. We make best use of the time we have. And we understand that it's an every interaction we have with the teaching is a blessing, a moment of grace and an opportunity for us to honor that and respect that as much as we can, okay? So um, along those lines, I would like to make a commercial for my teacher. Um, uh, Sharaji is coming to Miami for two weeks and everybody can join. There'll be an application process when uh, the registration is open for booking and there will be weekend classes, lead primary series and a conference, uh, kind of just like today. Um, maybe it's a little bit more intense. Um, and then there'll be a lead primary series and a lead second series. And those are on the weekends. So if you only come on the weekends, it's okay. If you only do one class, do one class. And then there'll be Mysore classes um, during the week. And to do the Mysore classes, you'll have to sign up for the full week and submit an application. And um, all that information will be posted online. The dates are going to be April 29th to May 11th. Yeah. So those will be two weeks. Uh, with a day of rest in between and no moon days. So six day week and then a six day week, which is real Ashtanga boot camp. <laughs> yeah, good. Now we have time for some questions. So if anybody here has some questions, uh, you can feel welcome to raise your hand. And if not, I would imagine we can start off with some questions from people that have been typing at home. We answered that already. Injury. So, like, how do you keep a consistent practice when you don't have a teacher and you're injured? Yeah, that's difficult. I'm sorry. That's hard. You know, it's like uh, it's like you're getting hit when you're down. You know, if you have an injury, first of all, uh, we can look at the traditional obstacles of the yoga practice. According to Patanjali, there are many obstacles. Uh, there's almost more obstacles Patanjali talks about than benefits of the yoga practice, actually. Um, there's a lot of like techniques, but it's not like, here's what yoga does. It's a lot of talk about the obstacles. So one of the obstacles that comes up um, is doubt, right? Pramada is doubt. And when we have a lot of things that are going wrong or difficulty, the biggest thing that comes up is doubt. And you start to doubt, am I doing more harm than good? That's kind of the, the, the question there. That's doubt. 
is this still good for me or am I damaging my body? You know, this is doubt. If you don't have a teacher, you don't have anybody to talk to. So then you don't, you don't have a community. So you're there by yourself. And I practice alone a lot. So I really understand what it means to get up out of your bed, have no interaction with anybody, turn on the light in the place where you're going to do the yoga practice, unroll your mat. There's no conversation. There's nobody to talk to. It's a very solitary experience. Nobody is watching you and nobody's giving you good. You just sit there and you do the opening prayer by yourself. Maybe your cat does a sad little meow and then you start, you know? So I understand it's very easy in that moment to just think, well, you know what? Let me just lie down. I'm going to go back to bed. I feel I need rest. It's very easy to let that doubt just click in and take over. The other thing that, um, that Patanjali talks about is that when there is um, uh, vyadi, stiana, samshaya, pramada, all of these things. So this is when you have injury or pain and stuckness in the body, when we have dullness in the mind, then these things compound and we feel kind of a proliferation of the, the obstacle state. So the bad news about that is this is exactly what comes up when you start doing the work of yoga. So when doubt arises and you think, oh, I don't know if this is working for me. Oh, now we can, we can actually look and work with the quality of the obstacle of doubt. Now, when we're working with how do I respond to doubt, then we start to get some very interesting kind of contemplative uh, like resources that, that can start to be at our disposal. Oh, who am I when I doubt? Oh, look, I start to um, get a little bitter towards the practice. Oh, look, I start to kind of like lapse into self-hatred or whatever comes up for you, you know? So to be able to be a, a, the observer enough of your experience so that you can experience what you're experiencing as part of the path, this is the best thing that you can do. Very difficult. Now, second thing, so this is kind of like the esoteric version of it. Second thing, which is very, very practical, if you have an injury and you haven't got a, a proper diagnosis, I absolutely recommend that you find a physical therapist or a doctor or someone who can properly help you find a diagnosis so that you're not in the blind about what's happening in the body. If you don't have a diagnosis and you're not medically trained or qualified to self-diagnose, then it will feel very confusing. And you may feel like, I don't know if I'm damaging, I'm not damaging, I'm this or that. And you can be in that state for years. But if you have someone that's properly trained that can say, actually what you thought was pain in your spine is a hyperactive quadratus lumborum, which is a muscle, then you have a tool. Oh, I can work with that. Now you have a path forward. Last thing, which is very, very practical is if you don't have a regular teacher nearby, build a relationship to a teacher that you can visit, whether that's going to India once a year, whether that's going to someone you can drive to once a month or something like that, but make some contact in with a teacher that you can visit um, and then visit them, you know, make a plan to visit them. You know, um, it's very difficult to keep the spark going on your own. Sometimes the spark goes out, you know, like if you have a, like a, if you've got a, a, a gas lit stove, sometimes a pilot light goes out and then, you know, you need to have someone repair it. And the practice is a little bit like that. If the pilot light goes out within, and if you don't get someone, a teacher, some members of your community to kind of help spark it again, it's very easy to just, you know, change the stove, you know, 
an electric one. I mean, so you talk to people and what that, what's that mean? You know, that's an analogy for you meet someone they're like, oh, I used to do Ashtanga every day. It was really awesome. I love it. It was so great. Why'd you stop? Yeah, I am. I'm not sure. Why did I stop? Oh, I moved and then I lost my teacher. And then, yeah. And then, uh, yeah. Uh, and then now I do, uh, what do I do now? I don't know. Uh, yeah. I should do it again, you know? <laughs> like if, if some moment, someone used to practice, they'll always, almost always come back to, I should do it again, you know? Especially if you see them. But the idea is anyhow, if you notice that the, that the risk of that light going out, connect back in with the community as soon as you can, right? If you have an injury, get the diagnosis. And then the back to the esoteric version, which is the hardest to understand, everything that arises on the path is itself the path, even and especially the obstacles. Okay. 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 Uh-huh. Okay. That's an interesting question. Okay. So now we live in this age. What a wonderful opportunity that this student is saying, I have a shala that I can go to. Right. And... I also have an online class that I can go to. Wow, this is like the opposite problem. I have so many teachers that are available to me. I'm just not sure where I'll get the most out of it. Wow, that's wonderful. But it's also doubt, you know? Huh. So there's a funny saying that, um, you know, Patavi Joyce and Sharaji, they, they always, they've said this so many times in so many conferences that they, so we have a saying in India, um, two doctors, Kill one patient. <laughs> you know, because one is prescribing, you know, one type of medicine and the other is prescribing the other type of medicine and then the patient is dead. <laughs> so sometimes we have a problem when we have too much information, you know. In the yoga world, sometimes we don't have only two teachers, we have the entire internet. And this is problematic. Like if we Google how to do trikonasana pose, oh my goodness, you're going to get like, always put the foot here. Never put the foot here. Always hold your toe. Never hold your toe. Use a block. Blocks are banned. And you're like, ah, you know, the triangle should be 90 degrees. The triangle shall be 85 degrees. Oh my God. I got to go back to geometry. You know, and you start realizing like, oh, I really didn't understand 90 degrees. I, you know. 90 degrees, 85 degrees is too much. I mean, what is that? I mean, like a protractor, you know, like measure your knees, <laughs> like draw angles. It's ridiculous. You know? um, so if you have too much, too much information, too many choices, then you maybe have already answered the question yourself when you say, I feel really connected when I'm in this space. Do that for a little while. Um, and if there's more feeling of that spark of coming into the traditional practice, follow that for a little while. If, you're, if you find that that's online, then to support the online practice, it's important to do things in person also. So if you find a teacher that's online that's really supporting you and you're connected with that teacher, make a trip to go and practice with that teacher. You know, um, my teachers were in India. They were not, and they were also not online when I started practicing. So the only time that I could sort of get that spark of inspiration was when I would take an airplane back to India. My first trip was for two months. My second trip was for six months. And then all I really thought after that was my main intention is to go back as often as I can. So for like the last, you know, 
more than 20 years, except for during the pandemic, I've been going back almost every year. And it's been a huge part of my uh, ability to stay true to the practice. So wherever you find the inspiration, go deeper into that. Wherever you're finding that. So you're finding out in the online class, do that for a little bit. And if you feel like, oh, I'm, I, I'm benefiting from this so much, see if you can meet that teacher in person. And then it doesn't mean that you have to choose. You can still go to the in-person shala, you know, uh, once a week, twice a week. You can do both. It's okay. Um, with the idea being that if you're getting conflicting information, that's the point where you may need to take responsibility for your own journey. And this is a difficult place for the student's path. And this is also something very particular, um, that like a problem that we have with our abundance of information. So if one teacher said, let's just say like triangle pose, right? So one teacher says, hold your toe, right? The next teacher says, I don't think holding the toe is good for you. Now, who is going to decide, right? So now you can bring them both in the room, okay. <laughs> let's see, like then it's like a divorce proceeding, you know what I mean? <laughs> and they're like, you said that this, I remember I used to be in class. No, 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 don't do that, right? Who decides? You have to decide. And you know what? Maybe some days you hold your toe, maybe some days you don't, and it's okay. You can integrate both of the teachings in a way that is respectful as long as you're tuning in to your body. See, the emphasis on a like, high level of anatomy and technique, this is something that is um, very much a product of yoga in the West. And it's good. It saves a lot of people from unnecessary injuries. It makes things more accessible. Um, and it, it helps us understand our bodies a little bit more. But when and almost all of the times that I've been practicing with my teachers, very little technique. Why is there very little technique? Some people, oh, Ashtanga is bad. There's no technique. Well, some of the reason why there's little technique is because as soon as you tell people this is how it should be done, guess what you did? Took away their exploration and you took away their ability to find their own way into the posture to figure out how is it that that triangle is going to happen in my body and what's my path to that? As soon as you say foot should be here, foot should be there, hold like this, then thinking finished. It's gone. Well, now it's like, wow, I'll check my intelligence at the door. And now I just need to put my foot there and I'm doing the right thing. No, this was never the purpose. You would go into the shala and see like 50 students, 50 different triangles, you know? And what was more confusing about that is you'd see Patavi Joyce go up to one very sad looking triangle and go, good. And you'd be like, good. <laughs> I'm sorry, the triangle looks like it failed geometry, you know? And then he'll come up to you and go, bad. You'd be like, bad? No, 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 no. We need like, and you're like, no, and then you have, then you have go, and it's, it's really confusing. And then, well, what was bad about that? Probably what was bad was you're staring at the other triangle. Um, that was probably what was bad. <laughs> so if we think anyhow about the space for us to get our spark of inspiration and constantly have that be referential towards um, our own journey and respecting our own agency and volition within the practice. This is something we have to come back to over and over. And it's not a definitive. This is like, oh, I'm going to go too much this way, and then I'll come back. And then I'll go too much over here, and then I'll come back. I'll lose my way a little bit, and then I'll come back. Oh, no, I'm going, I, you know, I, 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 I'm doing too much absolutism. Now let me come back. Oh, I'm going too relative. Now let me come back. You know, too much experiments. Now let me come back. Oh, too strict with the tradition. We'll constantly be navigating that space. And that, that's important to acknowledge. Hmm? Good. Oh my goodness. Anyone here have a question? Sure, Jack, go ahead. Uh, 
Jack. I think the first thing, let's go back to what should I expect? I think the best thing to expect is nothing. <laughs> so we should expect nothing, right? Let's expect nothing. Let's expect I never jump back. Let's expect I never put my leg behind my head. I never do a beautiful backbend. Expect nothing. I never do any of that. Nothing. Maybe it gets worse from where I am right now. We expect nothing. Then if we remove expectation, then we can experience the freedom of the practice. So instead of expecting you know, anything, then we can just come and experience breathing. We can come and experience our bodies. We can come and concentrate. And if we remove the burden of expectation, uh, particularly uh, any expectation of any asanas or how our body should improve as we practice, then we can actually practice. Now, instead of trying to get this pose, let me focus on the breath. Now, instead of let me try to, you know, uh, do a better headstand, let me just focus on how my shoulders are feeling. Let me just be with that for a little bit, you know? And so if we can remove the expectations, we can be in the state of yoga more. So that's the first thing. The second thing to understand is if you just keep consistency of the practice, automatically things are happening. Some things will improve, but the truth of it is some things will also not improve. <laughs> Right? We will take some steps forward, but sometimes we pay for those steps forward in one way with some steps back in another way. There's a lot of students that say, oh, I'm feeling so much more flexible now, but I've lost all my strength. So many students say that. I've experienced it also. Other students say, oh, I feel so much stronger, but now I'm so stiff. I cannot bend anymore. So we're constantly moving like this. We go a little this way, a little that way, a little this way, a little that way. But the idea is that after 10 years, 20 years of practice, we should have some sense of integration between mind and body. And that integration of mind and body is kind of the, the real kind of, you know, light at the end of the tunnel of the practice. Now, automatically, there will be changes. Automatically, we'll see shifts and we'll, potentialities open within our bodies. We'll be able to do things we couldn't do before. You know, just from the sheer fact of doing the same thing over and over again, things will change. This is what practice is. The most important thing we can think about is to remove the expectation for any result in any particular time. This is one of uh, the classic teachings that we find uh, as surrender, you know, um, and this is really the heart of the yoga practice is how to surrender. What are we surrendering? Our ego. What are we surrendering? our control right so the idea with surrender is not giving up but the idea is trust so when i surrender i must trust something else and in the same way that you know uh every tree in every year goes through a cycle sometimes dormant sometimes growing sometimes flowering sometimes fruiting again sometimes dormant sometimes flowering, sometimes fruiting, this, this cycle is happening within our bodies as well. So if we understand, oh, I'm just beginning my practice, we can't expect the fruits. 
So we think, I'm just going to practice. I'm just going to, pra- I'm going to focus on growing, growing, growing. That seed, which was dormant within me is now active. I'm growing, growing, growing at some moment automatically, just like in every year, the tree is moving through its cycle. Uh, the flowering will happen. The fruiting will happen. Let me do my best to give the soil of my practice fertilizer so that the fruits will be sweet when they start to come. That's the work to focus on. And then automatically it's happening. How long? Nobody knows. See, we're not all trees every year. So like your tree maybe takes one year, maybe another person's tree to grow some fruits, maybe it takes like five years. Someone else, they're on like lifetime path, you know? And like 40 years later, oh, I've made one fruit. <laughs> Please let it be sweet. <laughs> right? So in that way, we have to trust that there's some cycle that's working that's bigger than us. And we have to trust in that and understand, oh, what can I do? I can work on tilling the soil, fertilizing the soil. It can work on creating this growth within myself, trusting that automatically those other things will happen. Mm-hmm. Automatically they'll happen for you. Definitely automatically they'll happen for sure. You know, lots of fruits will be coming very soon for you. Consistency of practice. You just have to keep practicing consistency, primary series, not once a week, primary series. Let me do minimum five days, but better six days a week, consistently, persistently one year later. Wow. You will experience something really magical. You know, some people they'll do that for the rest of their life. And maybe they make one fruit. You know, very special fruit, <laughs> rare fruit, <laughs> you know, maybe equally valued too, right? So we see. So there, there was, um, there, anyhow, there's a, there's a funny story that there almost always would happen. And you didn't ask this question, but, but it's something it made me think of this. Almost always when I would be for a long time in Mysore, people don't ask Shadaji this question, but someone would always ask Patabi Joyce this question. My hips are so stiff when... Am I doing lotus position? Right? Someone would always ask him that. And um, the answers would be different for every single person, which I found interesting. He was never like, oh, you need to stretch your piriformis a little bit. And then, like, you know, this was not his answer. So every single time someone asked that question, it'd be a different answer. You know, one answer would be, take practice, practice, few months coming for you. Right? That's the one you want. That's the yes. You know, <laughs> other times it would be, why do you care? Oh, I'm so sorry I asked again. It's higher than me, right? And another one, this is maybe the worst one. Whole lifetime take practice. Lotus not coming for you. <laughs> you see the person be like, I, I, tomorrow? No, tomorrow, you know? <laughs> But then this was, wow, okay, so then is this person, do they keep practicing? So now, like, your yoga guru said there's no hope for you <laughs> to ever get this foundational asana that's, like, used all the time, what's more yogi-looking than Padmasana, and then now he said no hope for you. You keep practicing, right? If so, then we understand, oh, it's not about asana attainment. We realize, oh, oh, something else is going on here, you know, so... Also, like I said, be careful what you ask. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah? Let's do what time, what the, yeah. Okay, let's do like one more question. I think we started a little late. Someone wants to know what you got out of your Indian experience with the Buddhist mm-hmm. So I have just spent uh, the month of December practicing at the new new shala, um, which for many people is just the new shala. I'm just being funny. 
uh, the new Shala in Mysore uh, with my teacher, Sharaji, who is Patavi Joyce's grandson. She's my teacher's grandson. So Sharaji is my teacher now. Um, when I first went to India, Patavi Joyce was my teacher. And, and Sharad was always there also. Um, so I've just spent the month practicing there. And I have really, really, really uh, enjoyed the time there and felt so nourished from being a student. And I felt that there was some kind of a uh, rekindling of that sort of fire within myself, uh, returning to the essence and the essential foundation of the traditional method. Um, if I'm honest, there are some asanas in my practice that I'd given up on, you know, uh, some asanas that I felt completely content next lifetime. You know, I have some asanas that are very challenging for me that are in the fifth series that I just felt like, you know, I'm old, <laughs> which I'm not old, but I felt I'm old. I'm too old for this. And uh, I had heard a story once that Tim Miller, also in the fifth series, Tim Miller's wonderful teacher, um, who, who I sincerely hope comes back to teaching at some moment. Um, and uh, Tim Miller had said to Patavi Joyce, also at some point in the fifth series, thank you so much, my teacher. I'm done for this lifetime. <laughs> I will integrate all of the teaching of yoga. And when I'm, I will come back with a slightly more flexible body, and we can try again next lifetime, if you also come back, okay? And, uh, and Patapi Joyce went, okay. <laughs> because this pose also was, it was impossible for him. Um, so I thought, I'm going to tell this to Sharaji. So anyhow, he has helped me in this pose. And, a, and he looked, and the first thing, uh, he came up to me and said, Kino, did you do it? And I said, four years, no improvement. I, and then I said, please, I think maybe next lifetime. So I thought I'm making a deal now, like Tim Miller. I thought I'm going to make the Tim Miller deal, return this post, you know, <laughs> next lifetime. I'll come back to different, uh, we can start younger or something. I don't know. Um, and he said, no, next week. <laughs> and I thought, I've got to die and be reborn then, you know, within a period of one week. How am I going to do this? And then anyhow, he helped and every day. I, and then I, he would just help me every day. And then he encouraged me to try. And what I say is there is no one else on this planet who I would have believed, you know, who I would have said, okay, I'll try. Okay, I'll try, you know. Um, I wasn't, there isn't another person because nobody else honestly is doing that. So, you know, who else could I even believe? Um, no one, you know? So he is, has done these horrible things um, and lived to tell. And he believed in me. And this has always been my relationship with Patabi Joyce and Sharad Joyce. They have always believed in me more than I believed in myself. And every place where I've quit, they have always come up to me and tried to make me believe that I could do it. Um, and I never believed that I could be a teacher. I never believed that I could, you know, do a handstand. I never believed that I could lift up and jump back. They believed in me. And I felt that again, all over again. Oh, look, look, look at all the ways I'd given up. I was very content with my giving up, though. I was very happy. I wasn't like bitter. I was like, this is good. I'll do lots of meditation. Lots of meditation. More meditation. Mostly meditation. You know? <laughs> But then it was really something to come back and go, oh, look, oh, all of these, these things that I thought it was the time has passed. 
I realized, oh, the time hasn't passed. So this kind of the spark got rekindled within me. And I really feel it. I feel it feels wonderful to uh, have this kind of coming home to a, a place inside of myself. I, I've, I kept practicing, you know, through the pandemic, like with a lot of difficulty, as many people experience. But there's nothing that can be traded for spending time with your teacher um, immersed in the lineage. So again, many of you may not have the opportunity to go to India. This is why Shadaji is making tours and why we've asked him to stay for two weeks here so that people can get a little bit of the taste of what it's like to be immersed in the lineage. If maybe you don't have the opportunity for numerous reasons to travel to another country and give up you know, a month, two months, three months of your life to be able to do that, that is a real blessing and a privilege. So if someone doesn't have that opportunity, then you can still meet him on tours, even in Europe, he's going in a tour. So there are many opportunities to get connected into the lineage. Many of you are here now, you're also immersed in the lineage here. So this is, this is also a way for you to connect in and, and, and drop in. So, so every time we get the chance, you know, do that as much as possible. I also did something really wonderful, which is I did almost nothing else other than practice. And I, when I was in India, and if you know me, I'm someone that I'm doing everything all at once, all the time, like that movie that I haven't seen that I want to see, um, about the multiple dimensions, uh, you know. Um, so I really, like I thought, I had all these ideas. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this. And then I did practice, and then I went home, and I was like, oh, I'm going to lie down <laughs> for a while. <laughs> I'm going to get up, I have to go to philosophy class now. Okay. Now I'm going to go home, go back to lie down, you know? So I did a lot of lying down, which um, was fun and nice. And, uh, you know, uh, I, didn't, I didn't teach almost a single class while I was there. I didn't make a video or anything like that. I was just a student. And that was really, really nice. Um, I barely answered emails, uh, which was also um, weird for me. Um, but it was just really, really nice to just be a student and nothing else. So I feel like that for me, again, just reconnected uh, me to the, uh, the notion of how special it is to carve out that time. Any of you who are teachers, carve out that time every chance you get, whether it's a week, a class, a month, however much you can, carve out that time as often as you can. If you're not a teacher, but you're committed to the practice, same thing, carve out that time as much as you can. If it's, a, if it's a one class, go into that one class, switch off your phone, give everything you have for the time that you have and immerse yourself in that. If you, if you can do a week as much as you can, turn that week of practice into an immersive retreat where in your off hours, you're still somehow engaged in the practice. Try not to do, you know, when you're in a study period, try not to do everything at once all the time. You're in a student, be a student, be a student, you know? Um, and then, you know, then go back to whatever else it is that you have to do after. You know, then it's time to make the donuts. If you saw the Dunkin' Donuts ad from the, whenever that was, after, <laughs> if you never saw that, then you don't get that joke. Uh, that just means like, uh, you know, after your time, to, the time as a student is over, then the life starts again. Then you have all the job and responsibilities and everything. You'll go back over. That's fine. Then you'll carry something new into all of that. Hmm? Good. Okay. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find 
the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.